Good evening, and thank you for joining us for another episode of Addiction Talk. As many of you know, today is International Women's Day, and we couldn't think of a better way to, to honor this day than to bring on three powerhouse women in recovery who are sharing their journeys. Let's take a listen so you learn a little bit more about them. Our panelists on today's show, Marcy Hopkins is the award-winning TV personality host and executive producer of the nationally syndicated talk show, Wake Up With Marcy. A year into her recovery, she started the show to show others that it's possible to heal and they are not defined by their past. She is also the author of the Amazon bestseller, Chaos to Clarity, Seeing the Signs and Breaking the Cycles. She is a survivor of sexual abuse and just recently celebrated six years of sobriety. Laura Cathcart-Robbins is an author, freelance writer, speaker, and host of the popular podcast, The Only One in the Room. Her articles in the Huffington Post and the Temper on the subjects of race, recovery, and divorce have garnered her worldwide acclaim. She recently released her memoir, Stash, My Life in Hiding. She's also a 2022 TEDx speaker and LA Moth Story Slam winner. Jessica Landon is a writer, actor, certified resilience recovery coach, and public speaker. As a comedic actress, Jessica has appeared on Comedy Central's Mad TV, Robot Chicken, Jamie Foxx's sketch comedy show, Nickelodeon's Drake and Josh, and NBC's Medical Investigations. Today, Jessica has nearly a decade in sobriety and now focuses on helping others struggling with addiction. She also just completed her memoir, Human on Fire. Addiction Talk starts now. You can see just as we're learning more about our panelists that each and every one of them are powerhouse women who are sharing their journeys with us tonight. And I know that if you are listening, you're going to walk away with some golden nuggets, some inspiration, some insight um, for you if you may be struggling with addiction or you're in recovery, or even if this is something that has impacted your family. I want to bring my panelists on tonight. As you've seen, we have Laura, Jessica, and Marcy. Thank you, ladies, for joining us on this special day for this special panel. Thank you so much. Yes, thank you for having us. Well, I want to start out, you know, one of the things that I think is so important is for people to understand how did this begin for you? A lot of people are struggling this time of year. We are still somewhat in the midst of a pandemic and many people are finding themselves wondering, is this me? Do I need help? What is going on in my life? So I want to start out with you, Laura. Take me to how this started for you. How did you start to realize that you were struggling with an addiction and there was even a problem for you? Uh, thank you. Thank you again for having me on the show. I'm so excited to be here. And, um, and this is helping so many people. I just, I just love what you're doing. The, the way that it started for me was kind of that Hemingway quote, gradually, and then suddenly, mm-hmm. I, I was prescribed um, pills for, for a sleeping issue, insomnia. <laughs> and I, as soon as I took the first one, I woke up and my first two thoughts were again, please. I had this sense of euphoria before I fell asleep that I wanted to hold on to. I loved the sleep that I got. I had two little kids. I was a mom. I was in this high profile marriage. It was very 
um, it was exhausting my, the, the life that I kind of created for myself. So I, I was really struggling with not being able to sleep. These seemed to be the answer to my problem. And for about a year, I took them as prescribed by the second year. I, my tolerance was growing. So I needed a little bit more to go to sleep. So maybe a quarter more or a half more. Um, I was taking, you know, one every night and then three years I was taking three to get to sleep. Um, by the time I, I checked myself into treatment, which was in July of 2008, I was taking as many as I could get. Mm-hmm. And the, the idea, the recognition that this was a problem, I was so deep in denial because I had this seemingly perfect life on the outside that I was able to keep up with. You know, I was really like this pharmaceutical chemist, like figuring out the exact doses that I needed in order to show up for my life and not get any questions. And I was able to do that for a long time. So it kept me away from the admission that this was something that was bigger than me and that I needed to deal with, that I wasn't able to control it, that I was indeed powerless over it. And so um, that that was not a pleasant journey for me, but it was a very solo and isolating and lonely journey for me. Wow. When I just hear that, you know, Laura, the fact that, you know, it started out from a prescription, which a lot of people find themselves in, started out as a prescription, you realize, huh, this is helping me. You think this is helping me. And then fast forward a few years later and you find yourself in the throes of just getting as much as you can and saying, okay, something's not right here. And I think that is a wake up call to a lot of people. You think, okay, I'm managing this. Cause as you said, at some points you're thinking I'm managing this, you know, I can do this, you know, I I, I'm okay. And so I think that's very powerful. What you shared there that how quickly it can happen, you know, it starts out slowly, but then you find yourself in this place. So we want to get back to your story, but I think that's a great, um, insight that you just shared there. So now I want to go to Marcy. Marcy, when you hear, first of all, Laura's story, is there any parts of that that you can relate to? And when did you first realize that you were struggling or that there was a problem there? I absolutely, I relate to Laura because there's just that slippery slope. Uh, and for me, it was how I coped. Uh, mine was alcohol. And actually said six years, and I have to correct you. It's been it's seven years now. Okay, uh, okay. Well, congratulations. We everything counts. So we want to that <laughs> Um, but for me, and I, I love starting off the saying myself, uh, one from Eckhart Tolle, uh, my addiction started with pain and ended with pain. And mm-hmm. so Mine started because of the sexual abuse and and the trauma of my childhood. And so alcohol was how I coped as a a very young teenager. So I had a long road of drinking. I also had, uh, you know, trouble through those years. Um, I questioned myself a lot of times, you know, am I drinking too much? But you, you, a lot of times you, you blame your circumstances, right? And I lived in very much a victim mentality. I surrounded myself with people that were drinking or partying. And then I would find myself, you know, moving and changing circumstances. And um, I ended up having a great job. I ended up in a great marriage and everything looked really good on paper, right? Or, 
you know, in the neighborhood. But um, actually, when I got in front of the camera, things really came to a head because I had no self-esteem, no self-love. And and my drinking really picked up because uh, it became my liquid courage. Mm -hmm. And I was struggling at home. Um, my husband worked a lot. I, I was trying to manage everything um, along with that, you know, five o'clock wine uh, with my, the, you know, mom's five o'clock is happy hour, right? So I started my wine. Um, then it became lunchtime. Then it became my, uh, whenever I would go on an audition, maybe before a gig and uh, just that, that slippery slope. And for me, towards the end, I was hiding drinking. Um, I started drinking and driving, uh, which I did not do. Um, and then all of a sudden I felt like I could, uh, and things got really, really bad. My relationship with my husband was awful. And, um, it, it, it took a very strong circumstance for me. I ended up getting a DUI and I just would like to also say, um, rewind. I did go into the rooms. Mm. But then I started comparing myself to everyone and convinced myself I did not have a problem. And a year later, I got the DUI. And mm -hmm. so it was at that time I woke up the next morning after that DUI and said, I surrendered. And I said, I need help. I, I uh, am an alcoholic. And, and a beautiful thing actually happened. My husband embraced me. And it was the first time I felt love. It was the first mm -hmm. time I really felt love. And I, for me, I went into the rooms and I never went back. I just knew I had to do everything possible because I was about to lose everything. And I realized that I didn't want to lose my life that I had built. And so for me, the 12 step program worked. Uh, it was the best healing that I'd ever had because I don't care how much therapy I'd had. Uh, it really, really worked for me and my spiritual growth. And and I just continue to evolve. And I'm very thankful for the program and actually for being an alcoholic because I get to be the person I am today. Wow. Oh, Marcy, you dropped. Sorry, so I loaded. <laughs> no, I mean, it, there was just so many things that I could, you know, appreciate about your story because you said in the beginning, everything was fine. Like, and I think that was the same thing that Laura was saying in the beginning, everybody's thinking everything's okay. And then yeah. you get a point, get to a point that you're about to lose everything. Yeah. And that is what addiction does. And I think a lot of people think, oh, I'm managing this. And over time it can get to the point that it takes over your really? life. So I think the golden nuggets that we're going to get from you guys today on, on just your, your, your stories is going to be life-changing, I believe, for someone who's going to be listening to this. So now I want to go to you, Jessica. You know, we've heard Laura, we've heard Marcy um, kind of share their initial kind of aha moments, what was happening for them. What about what they said resonated with you? And so many things. Tell me your story. So many things. I, I wanted to be like, oh, yes. Oh, my God. Yes, me too. <laughs> I wanted to scream through the the uh, camera. But yes, I... Um, God, so many things when she she mentioned drinking before auditions and, and um, you know, the relation, I pretty much all those things. And I, I really did. Actually, I lost I lost everything. Um, so I so for me, I'll just give a little uh, 
quick summary of how it started for me. Um, like Marcy, very young, you know, I, I also had some sexual trauma at a young age. And by 11, 12, 13, I was not comfortable in my skin. I was like, my nervous system was so dysregulated. And I felt like there was just this screaming demon I needed to quiet and like this visceral feeling in my chest that I couldn't like, I needed something like there was a, like, an elephant on my chest. And when I found alcohol, which, you know, I'm sure the first time I drank with friends young, it was uneventful, but I knew, okay, this is the, as soon as I had alcohol touch my lips, I knew this is the answer to everything. Mm -hmm. This is what I've been missing. Mm -hmm. uh, I can sit in my skin when I have alcohol in my system. I don't feel so raw and exposed. I don't feel my inner, I don't hear my inner critic, and I'm not excessively ruminating on every single thing. I'm um, I'm able to breathe for the first time. Mm. It was like an elephant lifted off my chest, and um, so there were. It was just so many uh, euphoric like things clicked for me that I thought, okay, uh, this is what I have to do before school. I mean, I was young. I was secret, and and my drinking was very secretive from the get-go there was nothing fun about it. it wasn't like me going out with friends ever it was me secretly drinking vodka before going to school or before, before going to it was literally a medication for me I self-medicated from the get-go so that's really how it started and then I really didn't um I, I didn't accept that it was a, a real issue for me until maybe 20 21, I realized my habit was turning into an addiction. Slowly, I was crossing an invisible line and, and the grip was getting tighter and tighter. And I couldn't go a day without drinking. And I thought, man, this this is this is getting crazy. And then once it reached physical, so went over to addiction, then, you know, drinking before auditions, drinking all day, every day. I was in a comedy troupe at the time and we were going up at the comedy store and it became a party all the time, right? In comedy and, and acting, everything is, there's an excuse to drink for everything. Then I was drinking before gigs. I was, I was actually drunk on Drake and Josh. Nobody knows that except for the makeup artist that was doing my makeup right before I, I shot. But um, so I did things very, you know, intoxicated, but I, uh, nobody, you know, I was able to, I had a very, very high tolerance at the time. And once it, 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 once it had crossed over into physical dependence, that's really for me when it became, it was, it was hell living with it and, and hell coming. Mm. I knew I couldn't live with or without it. And that was really the prison. That was when I was like, Oh, you know, having panic disorder, agoraphobia, uh, my mental health just went to trash. And that's uh, when it just became very evident to those around me, except, you know, I, I would put a straw in a, in a tall, smart water bottle of vodka next to my bed because I'd be shaking so bad at three in the morning. I'd have to like, you know, suck it down a few gulps to calm my heart. And so my boyfriend didn't know he was a heavy drinker at the time. My parents didn't know. They thought I was just very ill with something like mono or Nobody really knew uh, that it was alcohol. And then, you know, I, I got honest about it finally with my parents. And that was the first of, uh, you know, like 10 treatment facilities that I had been through. So first, you know, that was that was really how it kind of giving you the arc of everything. But um, kind of started, like she said, started with pain, ended with pain, um, but very much a medication to me, you know, and that and that's why it was 
it was so hard. And to be ingrained at such a young age that this is the answer, that cortical mapping that happens so young, it's very hard to break that when you come into adulthood. It's very hard to break that cycle um, and and rewire your brain. Yeah, to rewire, like you said, because it was a coping mechanism. It gave you the liquid courage. It did all of those things. And, you know, when I think about what that rock bottom moment was for you, you know, Jessica, you said 10 rehabs you'd been to, to getting to the point you're today. Marcy, you said, hey, it's a DUI. You know, there was a DUI. You had been in the AA rooms, but you're like, I'm not that bad, you know, the denial. So I want to go back to, for each of you, kind of give me that rock bottom moment. I'm going to start back with you, Laura, because I've kind of been going in this, but, you know, everybody feel free to chime in if something resonates with you. But Laura, what was that that pivotal moment that led you to treatment to say no more? I'll, I'll say this. Um, before I tell you that that quick story, I, there were so many other moments, some spectacular moments that absolutely could have been my rock bottom that maybe should have been my rock bottom. If you had been watching me, you probably would have said, well, that'll do it. Mm-hmm. Now she'll go get help. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't one of those. It was actually the 4th of July of 2008. And I uh, we had two homes, my, my ex-husband and I, and I had taken our sons to our beach house to watch the fireworks on the 4th of July. They were little and it was just me and them. And I was in such debilitating withdrawal by the time we arrived at our beach house that I knew I I wouldn't make it. I I had to get some of the, you know, as Jessica said, my medication in me um, in order to do anything. And my medication put me to sleep. Like I was addicted to sleeping pills, which is so it's silly. Um, but I, I was, so I couldn't just take it and then go do stuff. I had to then be prepared to sleep for a little while, even if it was just a nap. And so I, I told my neighbors that I had a headache, which was not a lie. I had a whole body ache. I was shaking. I was aching. I was having chills and like all the signs of a really severe withdrawal. And my kids went with my neighbors to, to watch the fireworks. And I went to my stash hence the name of my book, um, and emptied the pills that I had in there into my hand. And I saw that I only had three mm. for the for the entire time that I was there for the whole weekend. And it was like someone slapped me across the face. I could hear my ears ringing. And I was like, how could there be only three? And I went to the um, refrigerator, the freezer and got the vodka and um, t- popped the pills and washed it down with vodka and then went to the bathroom and took Benadryl. Like I was doing everything I could to stop feeling the way I was feeling in that moment. And, you know, again, like both of these ladies said, I, I was at that point where, you know, I pills, pills, and then alcohol to boost them had been my solution. And now my solution was my problem. And I didn't have a solution for this problem. Like there was nothing for me to do. I tried everything to fix that problem, but it didn't work. And I couldn't get drunk and I couldn't get sober. I couldn't get loaded and I couldn't be sober. I couldn't be sober in my body. It was too painful. So I made the decision at that moment. Oh, I also peed the bed that night. I, which was another thing I was like, if I had heard about people doing that, I've never done that. I was like, if I do that, you know, it's a wrap. I'm going to just, you know, I'm going to ask for help. And, and that happened. And I, 
my kids got home and I wanted to desperately go back to our city house and get the rest of my stash so that I could show up for them and be a good mom. But I didn't have time. And I just had to be a good mom to them or as good of a mom as I could in that moment without my stash. I'm not sure what that looked like to them. Um, but I, tr- I tried. I tried. Mm-hmm. I I I decided that that was it. I was going to call a treatment center, which I did. Um, and I checked in uh, on the 14th of that of that month. So July 14th is the date that I checked in. And Laura, what do you think it was about that moment? Do you think it was realizing that you no longer had control? Because you said you had all these other times that yeah. should have been, you know, your rock bottom moment. But if you look back on that, and even as I hear you talk about it, I, I feel for you because I can feel like that moment of being the mom and being there with the kids and, you know, how am I showing up in this moment, you know, for them? What do you think was different? Was it the realization? Was it the lack of control? What was that? I think that I had many moments of grace. I have many moments of grace in my life, whatever that means to anybody. For me, it means like a portal. And I ignored them several times and just didn't step through. This was a moment that appeared to me as almost like a beckoning. You know, if you step through this, maybe you can be the mom that your kids deserve. You know, it might be too late if you continue. You know, your kids might have to visit you in prison or in jail or in institutions or um, bury you. You know, I just had, it was very clear to me that I was out of options, that to go forward meant drug dealers, to go forward meant, you know, uh, risking being exposed to everybody and possibly getting kicked out of my house, possibly ending up losing custody of my kids. No one had threatened me with those things, but I understood very clearly clearly that that was a possibility if I kept going. Um, and like like Jessica said, it wasn't fun. Nothing about it was fun. It was all so that I could not be climbing out of my skin at that point. Mm-hmm. And because I was doing that almost all the time, I figured you know, it was time to face that detox and get clean for good. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Jessica, when I think about it, you kind of called it like a demon, you know, when you think about it, like the demon that you're battling. And when you go back to, I know you said you've, you know, went to rehabs several times before you finally found more of a long-term recovery. What was it for you that was that rock bottom moment? I know you hit it. You said a lot of people didn't know. You started confessing to your family and things like that, even showing up on the set sometimes, and only a few people knew. So what kind of clicked for you that final time? You know, I know a lot of people ask this question, well, what finally did it? Because for so long, I struggled in and out of the rooms, in and out of treatment facilities, and nothing was doing it. It was like my my tolerance to pain was so high. Um, for me, it was very physical. Um, I had to get very close to death. And I, I say this, the pain associated with drinking had to become greater than the pleasure. And that had finally clicked for me. The pain associated with drinking finally became and eclipsed my association of pleasure with alcohol. And what was that pain that you were feeling, Jessica? Um, the screaming demon, the, um, the visceral, the pain of, well, at this point it was, there was so much, uh, pain associated with shame and guilt at this stage of the game. But I think, um, 
Was it a physical oh, pain? Saying, oh, you're saying the pain. Yeah. The, the, yes, I see what you're saying. Okay, so the the pain uh, from drinking, the pain um, and the shame and the guilt, the pain that drinking was causing me, not just physical. Physically, I was like almost dead, but the pain of of realizing that if I choose it, I'm going to I'm going to die. If I say if I take another drink, I really am going to die. And that's really a painful reality, because now I have to find a way to deal with the pain from living sober. I I, I will do whatever it takes because I want to live even if it's just one percent. I want to live more than I want to drink. And it took a lot for me to get to that place, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's deep because you're saying that, Jessica, that you wanted to live more than you wanted to drink. And I yeah. think that is, I mean, just hearing that I think can be really um, powerful someone that you get to a point where you want to live, that you knew, like you said, you knew, and even, you know, hearing Laura kind of share her story, you're at a point that, you know, if you keep going, that you may not be here. And, you know, it's sad because even in this country right now, we're losing so many people to overdoses, even though most of those are related to opioids and, you know, fentanyl, but still we're losing so many people, you know, to that. Um, And so I think what you said, shared there, Jessica, was really, you know, um, and kind of a wake up call to people that you've got to want to live more than you want to drink. And so Marcy, I know for you previously, you said DUI, that that was something, was that actually the rock bottom moment once you had the DUI and it hit you that you're not as in control as what you thought? Yeah. So I, I'd like to share like a little bit of that year, right? Cause it takes a long time to get to that rock bottom, but you're thinking about it all the time. Is this normal? You know, can I not do it? What else can I do to help myself to not drink as much? Maybe I'll just drink in the evenings, but instead of, you know, at lunchtime, you know, I was making my plans around that or whatever the case may be. So every night I would be in bed and I'd be looking for different ways that maybe I could get through it, like acupuncture, hypnosis, or whatever the case may be, because I was so fearful of giving up the one thing that Mm. always helped me, the one thing that I'd always leaned on and never let me down throughout my entire life because it was always there for me. And I had drank every day of my life, I think probably 18 on. And I, I quit drinking when I was 46 And I also, you know, there was one of those things that was discussed when I, I thought of alcohol as the answer to everything, because even when I was very young, my mother would give me alcohol if there was a problem, like your stomach hurts here, try this margarita, it helps me to go to the bathroom. So you're eight years old, this is like programmed, use alcohol when you have a problem. You can't sleep. I I mean, she was giving me half sleeping pills at nine years old. Mm -hmm. You know, so these were things, these were my answers. So this had been programmed in me for so long. And I just was so fearful. I was terrified of not drinking. And I thought the only way I was myself, that I could see just a glimmer of who Marcy was, is when I drank. So the idea of giving that up, 
even though I started, everything about me was deteriorating. I was crumbling from the inside out. I was in tears almost every day. I knew that something was wrong. My husband and I were fighting all the time. I was living in resentment and victimhood. I mean, my life, I, was get, I wasn't getting invited anywhere anymore. Like my life was crumbling, even though I live on a beautiful street, have this family, blah, blah, blah. But I'm about to lose all of that. Mm-hmm. And the thought of losing my children was that that was not going to happen. I, I could not allow that to happen ever in my life because it was the only time I felt real love, unconditional love. And I would do anything for my children. And so it was the last day of drinking. I'd gone on a gig, took my liquid courage, drank that, went out afterwards with a girlfriend and, you know, barely eating because I'm drinking my calories and I'm, I'm modeling clothes. Like it was like ridiculous. So I went into a blackout and got behind the wheel of the car. Mm. I swear there was an angel driving my car. I think there had been an angel driving my car for quite a while. Mm. And when I went to bed that night, I was still in that victim role. I was still uh, in so much anger, but it was when I woke up that next morning, I knew that I could no longer live the way that I, that I was anymore. And, you know, Laura touched on it. Like, I knew that I had, God had given me so many opportunities to quit. Like at Marcy, it's death or you need to do this or lose everything, right? You're going to kill yourself. Um, And I just had this overwhelming feeling that it was time to truly surrender Mm -hmm. and let it go and, and admit, stop lying admit to myself first that I was powerless over alcohol and then go downstairs, like I said. And when I was able to say those words to my husband and say them out loud, literally the weight of the world had come off my shoulders because I'd been living in this pain and sadness and and the lies and the shame and the guilt i mean like my god i, I couldn't get any lower mm-hmm. for so long it was just finally like it was like this relief like once was, you finally yeah. admit that it's like you're getting relief so i want to touch on something that you guys have all kind of mentioned but the lies of addiction the mm-hmm. lies that we believe and i want to just kind of do a round table on this when you think about the lies like oh that i can't you know, I won't be able to enjoy life. I won't be able to cope. What were some of the lies? I'll start with you, Laura. What were, give me two or three, you know, lies that you believed in the midst of your addiction. Um, I was extremely paranoid in the midst of my addiction. I, I truly believed that everybody given the opportunity would be against me. And, and, and really try to take away the thing that was keeping me sane, I thought, which was my, my pills and, and booze. And so I was very protective and resentful and suspicious of everybody. I, I, so those were all lies because I, well, I, I don't know what was the truth there. 
I know it wasn't what I thought it was, but I told myself that I had to be careful here, that I couldn't be vulnerable here, that I had to be, you know, on my best behavior here. Otherwise they might discover. And I think the biggest lie I told myself was that if I was real, Hmm. because my, my whole addiction, you asked us where it started really my, my addiction started when I departed from my authentic self somewhere around five or six. And it was a slow departure, but, you know, I would edit myself depending on my circumstances, um, you know, and, and the, the race component on that piled onto that because then there's code switching. So I was this way with one group of people and this way with mm-hmm. another group. And so that, that authentic Laura, um, every time I, I edited or altered myself was a departure from that. So by the time you know, I started taking pills and developed that appendance, the addiction was ripe and ready to pounce because I needed that scaffolding, right? I didn't have any scaffolding to hold myself up. I had split into two. And the addiction kind of allowed me to keep living that inauthentic life. Without it, I I, I don't know what, what it would have been without it then. But the thing was, the lie that I told myself is that if I were myself, if I were that authentic self, if I were vulnerable, um, I would be shunned. I would be deemed unlovable. I would be alone. And so the perpetuation of that, no matter how painful it was, seemed to be, to me, it would be less painful than exposing myself. And the realization that that thing they say about fear being mile high, mile wide and paper thin um, is something that I experienced, you know, the first time I was honest about what was going on with me with somebody. It was it was painful, but it was brief and it wasn't as humiliating, you know, as I thought it was going to be. And the that was a, a lesson that I still learn to this day. I'm actually more interesting as my authentic self. You know, this presentation, this this um perfection that I wanted to, this performative um perfection that I wanted to serve everybody was far less interesting than who I am authentically. Mm-hmm. And that still gets me. Like when I'm myself and people praise me for it, I'm like, what? You're like, wait, like, this is me. Like, that? <laughs> like that's that's cool to you. Like the mm-hmm. the high achieving community leader was not as cool to you, but this is cool to you. <laughs> so um yeah, that's that those were the lies. That was the fear. And then that was the result of of walking through that. Mm-hmm. Okay, moving on. Jessica, what was a lie one or two that you believed in the midst of your addiction? That I was better with alcohol in my system, that I was better, funnier, a better performer, better connector with people, better, uh, prettier, all of it. It was like, you know, it really, really brainwashed me. I mean, I was like, I'm not going to be liked or listened to, or I won't be able to act or do comedy. I won't be able to do, you know, go to parties and socialize. Like I'm going to be that awkward person. And, and maybe I am that awkward person without it, but people still connect with me. But yeah, there were just so many little lies about, and like, you know, um, Laura was saying about the, you know, I'm my authentic self. And and it is one of those things where you, it, I, I also still get, um, like, oh, wow, people do really like me authentically without when they say something, you know, very, very flattering about me when I'm being who I really am. And it goes to show you that people sniff out in office, uh, inauthenticity. They mm-hmm. really know when you're giving your true 
self. We all know. We know. I mean, I'm good at at sniffing out somebody that's putting on a mask, maybe because I did for so many years. But people really do see that and notice when you're your authentic self. And so, um, yeah, I think that it it many lies, but those were the ones that I've realized. Like, I'm capable of doing all of those things, and I'm so much better when I'm my authentic self and really true to who I am. And, and it's okay if somebody doesn't, you know, that's the other thing is it's not going to, I won't be okay if I'm not able to get everyone to like me all the time. Like I'm okay with that now. If somebody doesn't like me, if I'm really truly who being who I am, that's okay. I'm going to live. Feelings can't kill me. No, that's the other lie. My feelings are going to kill me. That was the lie that alcohol sold me. So you got to be callous. Enough. You got to drink something so that your feelings don't kill you. You know, yeah. that's good. That's good. Oh, that you thought your feelings were going to kill you, that you thought you weren't good at who just being you huge, because so many people I know can relate to that. And that authentic authenticity part that when you and Laura both showed up as yourselves, that you realize that, it was even better. It was better, you know, that people embraced right. you and the people that didn't embrace you, they weren't meant to connect with right. you, realize the brilliance of who you are. Cause I see you all as brilliant powerhouse women. And so Marcy, I have to ask you, what was there a lie that they didn't share that you felt was a lie that played in your head in the midst of your addiction? Well, I will tell you, I was very involved in the schools and because my kids, you know, were in different ages, so I'm in different schools. So I had up these walls around me and I was drinking and participating in different things. And I truly thought no one could see through like these barrier that I had protected myself with. But then at the same time, I thought that I was completely transparent, right? Mm. Chewing the gum. You know, I'll never forget one time going to something at the school and my friend goes, wow, you smell like a party. And I haven't been at a party. (laughs) So that's a problem. But, you know, I I would tell myself lies that nobody knew what I was doing. Uh, No one knew about the drinking. um, And and also that that there was that I really wasn't drinking too much that maybe you were just a square. You didn't know how to have fun. My husband was boring, right? So it wasn't abnormal what I was drinking because I would most times try to surround myself with people that were drinking like me. So it looked normal. Hmm. And um, so that was a lie that I certainly was telling myself that my drinking was normal. But even though I constantly question it just so you do know, because my mom was an alcoholic and I always said to myself, I never wanted to to look like her. But then at the very end, I was crying because I saw myself looking like her. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there, there's so many lies we we tell ourselves and tell others. We're constantly mm-hmm. telling lies. I mean, y- your life just becomes a lie, really. Mm-hmm. So you may not even realize you're lying anymore because I never even knew who I really was, but yet I thought I was a better person when I'd been drinking, which I know now is not the truth. And, and both Laura and Jessica have said many things that I could say the same. 
No, I, and you know, when I think about it, both of you, all of you said something, but I think, you know, just touching on Marcy ending on some of the stuff that you said, but the denial that nobody knows, because you think you're hiding it, you know, mm-hmm. but people around you are seeing signs that things are going on. Like your friend's like, okay, well, you smell like a party. It's, mm-hmm. it's something going on and you think you're hiding it or you think, you know, I'm not, it's not as bad as I really think. And I think that is the, the challenge of this disease. It yeah. lies to you. And so many people are in this midst of living in this lie. And so now that you guys have broke free of this lie and the lies, and now you guys are in recovery. So Marcy's like, don't say six years. I have seven years. So, you know, it's a proud moment that you've been able to come on the other side of this. But of course, addiction is a disease. And it's something that we know that you'll have to manage, you know, for the rest of your life. But I want to get some golden nuggets from you guys and wisdom from you, you know, where you are now in terms of recovery. So when you think about recovering, what has been the biggest benefit of your life? How has it changed your life even beyond what you thought imaginable? And I'm going to start with you, Laura. What has been the biggest benefit and how has it changed your life? Well, I think the biggest benefit um, for me is, is, I was existing and enduring and trying to master and trying to gain control. It was exhausting and defeating. Like that was my existence before I got sober. And it, and it was, I'm using that word again. It was just an existence. I was not really living. Um, you know, my first year of recovery uh, was excruciating. <laughs> I did not like getting sober at all. I did not have that glow that other people had. I resented everybody. I absolutely only saw the differences. And, you know, what I, what I discovered later was that, um, you know, one, one, I, I got to show up um, for, for people and not just take pills and drink enough to show up. So, and then so that I could get out of there, you know, it's, that kind of mindset's a little bit like having like low grade diarrhea. Like that's all I could think about was how long do I have to talk to this person until I can get out and feel and get well again? You know, how long until I can go home and knock myself out? And so after getting sober, that was not my thought, even though I was anxious about rejoining society without my medication. Um, and, and that was hard. That's probably why that first year was hard, but, but the freedom joy, mm. That's good. Was, was yes, I, mm-hmm. you know, and that is a loaded word for black people because we, I'll speak for myself, I am not really free in this country in a lot of ways. But this sobriety and recovery, you know, sobriety for me is when I put it down and I became abstinent, and recovery is what I got into to enlarge my life. Um, the freedom I found as a result of that work, mm. um, and it is work was is so sweet you know the way that my relationship with my now grown sons is tight i see you know, those photos on your instagram yes yes we are tight i said one's here right now i see them every day we have family dinners on sunday i'm in a relationship with a sober man um you know for the last 15 years since i've been sober i i have a relationship with my parents that mm. is without I don't have any red in my ledger. I don't have unfinished business with anyone. That's the freedom for me that I get to live like that. 
All I had was unfinished business before. Mm-hmm. All I had was I'm turning around in the aisle at the grocery store because I can't see you because last time you saw me, blah, 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 or I owe you this. I don't have any of that anymore. Ooh, but you know what you said, Laura? Oh, that was what? so cool. First of all, showing up, that yes. now you're showing up, and then two, freedom. Yes. I mean, that you can feel, I don't know if y'all, but you can feel that. I can feel mm-hmm. that when you say the freedom, the freedom that it gave you. And yes. ooh, I hope somebody who's struggling right now can hear that and hear just the the joy yes. that is in your voice of being able to show up for your son and all the things that you're able to do now and the freedom that they will realize that there is freedom in recovery. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so that's so good. That's so good. I had to reiterate that because it was so good. Okay, Marcy, for yes. you, what has recovery given to you? What's been the best part? Well, gratitude, happiness, joy, and a spiritual connection unlike anything that I've had in my life. Uh, I I could never even imagine living a life that I live today mm. and waking up, you know, happy, joyous, and free every day and being able to connect to my higher power and know how to self-soothe. And uh, just, I'm, I, it's hard to put into words what life can be like when you are living in such pain because you can't believe that, that this good, yeah, that there's really true joy and that we are all supposed to live in joy. Mm. And but that, you're worthy of that, you know? Yes. And, you know, my higher power shows me signs every day has guided me and I can hear now and mm. see the guidance because I'm no longer in a cloud, in a, in a haze. So I can hear the guidance of what I'm supposed to do in this life, the mission that I have been put on. And, I, and for that, I am so grateful. And, and the family that I have and the connection to the family that I have and the connection to myself, mm. number one. Mm. Because it's, to have self-love it all starts there. And I never had that. And I never knew who Marcy was. And I just thought that I was a shell of a person. I only had what was on the outside. And today I know that I'm not stupid Marcy that can just fix her hair and try to, you know, use her body for something, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm very grateful to be whole today. You guys are using some powerful words. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just, um, honestly, gratitude, gratitude, gratitude. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's huge. Okay. Jessica, you know, we've heard a lot of words. We've heard freedom. We've heard showing up. We've heard whole. What would Gosh. you, you know, I, well, I certainly would not be alive if I hadn't chose life over alcohol. So life first, right? Life, God, you know, spiritual connection, and, and I honestly, I would not have my son. I look at him all the time and I think, wow, if I chose alcohol that day, I would not have you. I would have never become a mom. I would have died. I, there's no way I would have, I would have ever become a mom. That has been one of the biggest blessings. And, um, 
you know, like Marcy was saying, the spiritual connection, that was um, a real powerful, my first year was an extremely powerful sort of perspective shift um, from body identification to spirit identification. Because for so many years, you know, having done Playboy, having done Perfect Ten, having done, you know, acting and the, the, the actress, the glamorous life, my body had become my value and what I had to offer the world. And that was it. And so that was another big lie I had to break through. But really, really recognizing that my purpose and my soul and my heart and my, mm. um, you know, meaning, significance, these things are what matter. My I'm just encased in decaying flesh. That's going to go. That's 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 temporary, temporal, you know, and ultimate reality is not this where ultimate reality is all I'm concerned with. And that has been something, you know, so important to me because having that relationship and really, really connecting to the source of all things and becoming a conduit of, of, of the light onto this world is really what to me defines my success. My success is not what I brought to the table, not uh, in any way, other than just bringing light to the world, being, you know, getting out of my own way and being the faucet, not the water, but letting God work through me, helping others, being the message, you know, um, and just so. And that is a huge piece for me, too, is service and connecting with others and, and being a listening ear and doing things for other people, because that really built up my self-worth. Then I could realize, oh, I have so much more to offer than my body. I am a good person. I can, I, I see the value that that person sees in me now. I can forgive myself and the little girl that that took on the responsibility of being molested. Mm. And I, I, so breaking free from all that was such a power. That first year was so powerful for me. Um, and having do, do you know been to so I, I you know really depended on meetings 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 and then I found the spiritual aspect the most uh, mind blowing and powerful experience that I wanted more of it so I did a course in miracles and I started reading you know books on spirituality Marianne Williamson books and all of these spiritual uh, thought leaders I wanted more of it I couldn't get enough of it that's that has been the biggest piece to me to living a life of meaning and significance is the spiritual aspect. Wow. Y'all have blown me away just with the words and just the passion and everything that you have shared. So I want to get into more some strategy too. So if you were to say, what are the three things that help you stay sober? What are the three things? And maybe it's self-care or something that you do. I know it's, a t you know, for a lot of people, it's the support or having a community around them. But if you were to say, two to three things that have been instrumental in where you are today in maintaining your sobriety, what would they say? I'm going to go back to you, Jessica, and then I'm going to go to you, Laura, because Jessica, one of the things you initially said is I wouldn't be a mom. So I'm sure motherhood is probably one of the things that helps you in maintaining your sobriety. But if you could give us a, a couple of other strategies of that have been effective for you. So I find that realizing that I am not my thoughts. I am not my feelings. I am not my emotions. I am the consciousness observing my thoughts, feelings, and emotions. And the more distance I have from those and realizing and detaching from them and recognizing that I'm not 
you know, I don't have to be so reactive and pr a prisoner to them. I don't have to be so uh, impulsive. I can make that pause and separate myself from them and realize, oh, okay, as if it's happening to somebody else. I think that's really um, a, a really good step in in acknowledging that you're not you're not your human cravings. Another thing is cravings. Like I can I can feel the craving right? Especially in my first year and realize I'm not this craving. I'm the one observing that I'm having the craving. And that's a really powerful thing to the mind to separate yourself from the experience, right? So, and then, so that um, working out obviously is a huge, that my first year exercise helps heal the brain. It just does neuroscientifically. That's just a fact. It will help expedite the process of healing and homeostasis. Um, and, um, and then this is a key that I always share in my sober mom squad uh, meetings that I host. Um, and it's helped a lot of women because they always come back and say, Oh my God, I started seeing signs. I, it, when, when I was in doubt, like six, seven, eight months of sobriety, I started to doubt things and just feeling the craving coming on and, and being so in my body and in my flesh and reactive and impulsive. And and I knew I needed the spiritual piece, but I'd always had, uh, you know, this idea that God was this religious thing and I, I couldn't touch it because my mom was Mormon. My dad was Presbyterian. That's a whole other thing. But it just was synonymous to fighting for me. And so I just started praying on my knees, which was something a, a sponsor said to do. Pray on your knees. And I started asking for signs and signals and confirmation and guidance. And I, but I was really seeking the signs and the signals because I needed to know, okay, if I, and, and I was like, I'm just, this is a test. This is an experiment. I'm going to ask for signs and signals. And if I don't see anything, I'm going to drink. Mm. I'm telling you, I opened my eyes. I really started to look around and there were irrefutable signs, mm. synchronicities, uh, serendipitous things that would never have occurred that maybe I wouldn't have noticed, but I started seeing these things 11 and 11, 11 over and over again. And it was like, something is talking to me, God, angels there. I am in the right place and I'm going to keep going. And now I have confirmation and I'm going to let it guide me. And I, I had this shift in belief system. It was like, wow, that's, that's what I needed to keep going. No, so that I was Signs, signals, confirmation, and guidance. No, so I talk, hear you there talking about guidance, exercise being key, you know, your son finding something that, that reminds you of your why, I think is really mm -hmm. powerful. So Laura, what are two or three things that have kept you, you know, grounded and, and, and steadfast to your recovery? Um, for, for me, my, my maternal instinct is the strongest instinct that I have. Um, during my addiction, it was stronger than my instinct for self-preservation, um, which is saying a lot. You know, I wanted to protect my kids more than I wanted to protect myself. What I realized was that my addiction was bigger than that, that instinct, my maternal instinct, which was, which is a juggernaut, my maternal instinct. Mm -hmm. Like I would take a bullet from my kids. The mm -hmm. addiction was bigger than that. Right. And so I needed to find something bigger than the addiction, which is my recovery. So I developed a batting order with the help of this old Marine. When I first went to my second meeting at this, at this new place um, after treatment. And he said, he gave me a batting order. And so it, it wasn't the batting order that I took, but 
his batting order was different. But what I decided for me is that my recovery had to come first. Um, my, my family, my sons, my parents had to come second and everything else, including the man I was falling in love with had to come third. Mm-hmm. And so that meant if my boys needed me, but there was a meeting I was supposed to be at, I had to go to the meeting unless it was dire, right? Unless it was like, right. we need to go to the doctor. But if they wanted me to just stay home and watch TV with them, as much as I want to do that, I have to go to the meeting because my recovery has to come first so that I can show up for them. And that way I can show up for everybody else. And so that that has been that has sustained me throughout all of these years is every time I have to just make a decision, I'm like, is that feeding my recovery first? Am I taking care of that first? If the answer is yes, then I can do anything else I want, basically. But that has to come first. And like Jessica, I, I, I exercise five days a week. I meditate every morning. I have these series of non-negotiables um, mm. that I engage in, and, and those are two of them. I also, you know, I, I, I do food prep so that I'm not starving and eat the wrong thing. You know, I do that on Sundays. That's one of my non-negotiables so that I have food for the week that's good, that sustains me, that won't, you know, doesn't mess me up and, um, and you know, in service. And also, you know, hanging out with my my man, like, <laughs> he's my person and I, I need to carve that time out for us because his, our relationship is really important to me and I'm busy, but that's another one of my non-negotiables is not to just, you know, kind of keep putting that aside. I, I need to invest that time. Mm-hmm. That's good. I love the batting order, you know, yeah. being able to have those things like this is first in my life. I knew because like when you broke that down by the maternal instinct, even though that was your strongest instinct, you realized that the addiction was stronger than that. So you had to create this system to say, okay, that is good. I mean, I think that can help a lot of people in what you said there. So Marcy, what for you, and I know I've been keeping you guys, but you guys have been giving me so many golden nuggets. I'm going to try to wrap this conversation up soon, but I feel like I'm being fed and I know so many other people are too. Um, but Marcy, what would you say were your two or three strategies that have been most effective for you? Well, I had to let go of my ego and I had to keep showing up for myself. And the only way that I could show up for others was to make sure I was showing up for myself and filling my toolbox And I know Laura and Jessica know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about my toolbox. These are things you learn in the 12-step program. And, you know, being grateful, shifting your mindset, meditation every day, uh, learning how to pause. There are a lot of gems that you learn from being in the rooms of AA. and you need to open your ears and listen and and let go of the wheel because you don't know it all. None of us know it all. And it's the old timers that can teach us the most. Mm-hmm. And we need to be able to listen to others. And we need to, religion is very difficult because so many of us, we are raised in, you know, traditional religious um, organized religion. And, you know, a lot of times we're scared of this big overpowering idea of what God is and that we're going to be damned. But the Mm -hmm. reality is you learn about your higher power and spirituality in a very different way 
when you're in the program. And when you allow yourself to do that and you really turn yourself over and start listening because it starts with love and and God is love. Whatever you want to call it mm-hmm. is love and an energy that flows through us. And it's you lead with that energy and you learn about that energy and giving that to others. And that's what you get in response. And you start to be able to change the people around you and they uplift you and you uplift them. So it's, there's so many things and nuances to learn. And I I wish, I know that you say two or three and we say so many more because there's so much to learn. Mm -hmm. And there's so many beautiful things that you get in sobriety. And if someone Mm -hmm. hasn't, uh, maybe they're trying to figure out they're drinking too much, or if this is something for them, I mean, the reality is if the, if you're thinking about this all the time, mm-hmm. am I doing t- too much? Is it affecting my life? It's time to start looking at it. And I understand the fear of it mm-hmm. because it is fearful. The idea of never drinking again, that's scary when it's all right. you've had. But I think that what we're all show- sharing is the beauty that comes. It's work. It's daily work. But the beauty that comes from it. The yes. life that you can live, that is possible to live. And just knowing that and listening, listening to what other people say, giving yourself grace and, and just showing up. That's no. what you Oh, my gosh. You guys, I mean, this panel has been, <laughs> y'all have, I mean, you know, I've been touched by this very much so. And I want to share, you guys, if you want to hear more from them, of course, you can Follow them on social media, which you can find on theaddictiontalk.com. But they also all have books. So we want to go through some of those books and then give them a final word. You know, we have uh, this great book, Stash, uh, My Life in Hiding. You know, Laura talked about that. So you can go check that out, more of her, her memoir, her story. We also have our next book, Chaos in Clarity. I mean, so good. Marcy, you know, sharing her journey. And then we have our final Um, book that we want to share, Human on Fire. Ooh, that's good. So all of those, make sure you support them. You know, they're all trying to get their message out into the world. They're all sharing their journeys and being vulnerable with us. And so, you know, I just think that that the more we can share, the more we can share our stories, the more that we can be vulnerable and honest and transparent, the more lives will be changed. So my final thing, as we wrap up this just amazing conversation, I want to ask you one final thing. If there was one takeaway that you hope people take from your story, whether they read your book or they hear you from today, if there was one thing that you would want them to take away from your story tonight, what would that be? I'm going to start with you, Laura, since we started with you at the beginning. (laughs) What is that one takeaway that you would want them to take away from your journey? Uh, Don't be afraid to examine what you're holding on to. Mm. Um. I was. And once I did, I I realized that it was okay to let go. That's good. It's okay to let go. Mm -hmm. Examine what you're holding on to. Okay, Marcy, what do you want people to learn from your story? That one takeaway. That you're worthy. Mm -hmm. You're worthy of the best life possible. And uh, you just need to show up for yourself. So good. So good. Show up for yourself and you are worthy. Regardless of how you feel in this moment, you are worthy. And Jessica, we end with you. What do you hope people take away from your story? 
no matter how low you go, it is always possible to recover. Mm. Oh, good. Very good. No matter how low you go, it's always possible to recover. Well, thank you, Laura, Marcy, and Jessica. We've had on this International Women's Day. I feel grateful to have been able to share your journey with others. And thank you, thank you, thank you for spending your evening with us and for sharing in such a vulnerable way. And for all of you who are tuning in, whether you're watching this live or on the replay, thank you for joining us tonight. Make sure to share this with a friend or someone you know who is struggling and may need to hear this message tonight. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.